One, two, three. My peak gets smaller and smaller every episode. Yeah, I know how that feels. <laughs> so we'll try not to talk too much about fountain pens this time because I think we kind of kind of uh, blew the lid off that topic last week, didn't we? We did, although it didn't. You know, it didn't turn out that badly. I think in the end, certainly mm. we got some some feedback from it and people who were interested. We got a comment on Reddit from nine six nine nine bird our Thai listener yep and uh we also had some some comments on on twitter from charlie of a town fm fame who i'm not sure if he's actually bought one yet but he was definitely looking at them have you bought one i have not yet i've decided that i'm going to get the twisby echo oh now the twisby echo i don't think i mentioned in the last episode i mentioned it to you after we finished recording but it was one i should have mentioned because it's in the same price bracket as the Pilot Metropolitan and the Lamy Safari. Uh, but it's a piston fill mechanism. So it's it's amazing value. It's it's like $30, just under $30 for a, a proper piston fill pen. So that's that's also worth looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I haven't quite decided yet whether or not I want to actually get a fountain pen. But uh, right. if I do, then it will definitely be that. The only thing is that here in Stockholm, it's not stocked very uh, you can get it online i'd like to be able to get it in a store so i can try it but uh right yeah twisby sure. is a bit difficult like that. i've never seen twisby in a shop even in japan where it's fairly standard for for department stores for example to have quite large sections for pe- fountain pens right twisby is a bit of a uh, obscure brand i think in in that environment i should mention while we're on the subject of twisby i made a grave error last time and said that they were from china uh, they are, in fact, from Taiwan. So, sorry, Twisby, people of China. <laughs> just forget everything I just said. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, we also made a bit of a faff with the uh, the origins of Mont Blanc as well, didn't we? Right. In the same breath as saying that Germany was famous for its fountain pens, uh, we sort of assumed that Mont Blanc was from France or Switzerland, when it is, of course, in fact, from Germany, like all the other good fountain pens. <laughs> right. Kind of a funny... <laughs> Funny name for a German company to have, though, isn't it? I don't know what the history is. I see. I did last week when I looked it up, but <laughs> I've forgotten. So. <laughs> Very good. Very good. I'm going to Helsinki on Monday. Oh, are you? Yes, I am. That's exciting. Bit of a one-day business trip to Helsinki, and it's uh, it's so close that it's, it's one hour away from Stockholm, and it's so close that, you know, it's one of these situations where you, you get on the plane, you put on your seatbelt, the seatbelt sign goes off, then the seatbelt sign goes on, <laughs> right. and, and then you land. You know, it's like, right, it's, uh, right. Just about the time the plane has got altitude is when it has to start the descent. Um, so it's sort of you know ridiculous. This is like a this is the kind of novelty that really only Europe can do this well. Where you, well, I suppose you know any other country. Right, well, could, America's a bit like that as well. You you tend to fly. But it's know, the same country. You're still in America, right? Yeah, but you're, right. Yeah. So like one hour later and I'll be in a completely different culture with a completely different language and completely different people. Yeah. And um, that's, uh, yeah, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be fun. I have, um, it's a one day business trip. So I'm, I'm leaving very, very early in the morning and uh, spending, the, I have a meeting in Helsinki and that's going to take place around lunchtime. And then uh, I uh, had options for the return flight. And I decided to uh, actually the cheaper option were the later flights, so I um, took the uh, late flight, which arrives back in Stockholm at eight o'clock in the evening. So I have like a whole afternoon 
wandering around Helsinki trying to find something to do. So if anybody, any of our uh, Finnish listeners, if you have any recommendations for things to do on a cold, wintry afternoon in Helsinki, then uh, please let us know on the Station 13 Reddit by Sunday. <laughs> by sunday this episode will go out on saturday if we're lucky so right. very tight deadline on those helsinki recommendations that's, that's right. saturday saturday morning u.s time so saturday evening helsinki time and already sunday morning japan time mm. where i happen to know that our main finnish listening population lives right are you into grand prix at all denny there's a reason for this question. I'm getting to it, but uh, just ask you that first. Are you into Grand Prix or at all? Not particularly. I did used to live with someone who was extremely into Grand Prix, right? And so I have had it on in the background in my house many times in the past. But I am not personally particularly invested in it. Mm. Why is that? I love Grand Prix. I don't follow it actively anymore, but I love it for a simple reason, and this is this is relevant to Finland. Okay, I of course grew up in the wonderful, wonderful town of Adelaide. And Adelaide used to be host to the Australian Formula One Grand Prix. All right. It was a, it's a city circuit in Adelaide, and every time that the Grand Prix would come around, you know, basically the, the city transforms into this you know, party zone, basically, uh, <laughs> where um, uh, it's just like one long party, and you get you know, all, all the car collectors and the antique cars come out on the roads and... Uh, the sound, you know, I lived um, quite close to the city centre where, where I grew up and uh, you can hear the sound of those Grand Prix, Grand Prix cars driving around during the day. And yes, so the best way to appreciate Grand Prix, I found, is to watch it on television because you basically can see everything all around the circuit all at once mm. and you have the uh, excellent commentators giving you update on, updates on what's going on. But Actually going to the Grand Prix when you have the opportunity is, of course, it's a pretty electrifying experience. Just the volume, you know, those mm. those cars are really, really loud. And uh, I remember the one time that I did go to the Grand Prix, it was a school excursion uh, for my primary school. Oh, wow. And um, that was when Ayrton Senna was driving the, driving for the, uh, which one? The Yellow Camel, <laughs> the Yellow Camel <laughs> car, we used to call it. Uh, is that Arrows? Williams? Uh, I don't remember. This is how familiar I am with Grand Prix. Anyway, the reason that this is all related to Finland uh, is because uh, Adelaide actually was the location of a fairly horrific accident with a certain Finnish Grand Prix driver uh, who is uh, none, other, none other than Mika Hakkinen. I don't know how to pronounce mm. his name. Mika Hakkinen is one of the legendary Finnish Formula One drivers. And um, there was a really horrific accident that happened in, in on the Adelaide circuit to him. And he was actually hospitalized in Adelaide for uh, some time after that accident. Mm. And he sort of became like a, you know, honorary citizen of Adelaide during that time, you know, that the whole city was kind of concerned for his well-being. Mm. Uh, so there's a sort of a, a funny, very distant, odd connection i think between adelaide and finland somehow <laughs> that uh you know whenever i go through finland i'm always reminded of you know mika hakinen and that accident and you know the time that he was in adelaide recuperating and all of that so mm. uh maybe i'll see him on monday maybe you will yeah send him my regards maybe i won't 
so so you're going by plane is that the most common way to go i mean i i imagine there's a train as well right uh no there's no train because there's sea in between sweden and finland oh i see you can yeah yeah you can you can probably take the train across the top <laughs> right but uh no there's no, oh, no is the land border that far north yes i think so yes right. but the um okay. uh no between uh it's the Scandinavian Sea between Finland and Sweden. Right. So the most common way to go to Finland, obviously, is the aeroplane. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very cheap. Very cheap. Like one way from Stockholm to Helsinki mm. is about the equivalent of maybe like seven restaurant meals. But I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I don't think you and I go to the same sorts of restaurants. <laughs> I see. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, uh, it's very cheap. And you, there is also a boat that can take you from... Um, on, how many restaurant people? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one way is about 850 crowns, which is 10,000 Japanese yen or about $100. about $100, yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's quite cheap, but I wouldn't put it in the very, very cheap. I mean, a... Return ticket to Malaga from Birmingham with the cheap airlines costs like sixty dollars or something. Sixty pounds actually. Is that about an hour? That's 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 more. That's like a couple of hours. Mm, okay. But the cheap flights from like the UK, all the sort of EasyJet Ryanair flights within Europe, like from the UK, tend to be unbelievably cheap. Oh, okay. Like it always amazes me. Mm. Speaking of um, the UK. The UK's been uh, seeing quite a lot of snow after uh, over the past few days, hasn't it? Yes, the the beast from the east. So they call it, the, it the beast from the east. Well, being east of the UK, I can vouch for this being a fairly beastly cold cold front. We've had uh, fairly thick snow fall here in Stockholm for the yeah. Actually, it's been about three or four weeks now. That I think that the snow has been around and the. We live in front of a lake, mm. and uh, the lake has been frozen over for quite some time. And uh, every weekend, usually the kids will enjoy going out onto the lake because you can actually walk on it. Mm. But it's uh, completely covered in snow, of course, so you don't really get the sense that you're walking on ice. Right. But, uh, yeah, there's, uh, they have like a, a Zamboni that goes around making a track for people to do ice skating. Mm. So you tend to see, like, if you see this big... Zamboni driving around on the on the frozen lake, you can be pretty confident that it's going to be able to support the weight of a person. What is a Zamboni? Zamboni, isn't that the name of the... You're asking an Australian, so I actually don't know. <laughs> but I think it's the okay. vehicle that uh, that goes across the ice to make it smooth so that people can ice, can ice skate on it. Oh, I see. Oh, that's called a Zamboni, is it? Well, it might be Zambonai. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds Australian. <laughs> <laughs> I know I know nothing about snow and ice and all these kind of winter sports because I'm from a desert. But uh, oh, speaking of winter sports uh, in a desert, <laughs> yes. Have you seen the new Alto game has come out for iOS and TVOS and all that? Alto's Odyssey. No. Are you familiar with Alto's Adventure, the first one? I'm not. I know I recommended it to you once, but you probably didn't get it at the time. But Alto's Adventure was it was very popular when it first came out. And it was it wasn't really revolutionary in the it was an endless runner game essentially, which there were a million of. But it, it had a different style to all the previous ones in that it was extremely relaxing. Mm. And you played a I think it was Finnish actually, 
the, the main character, Alto. I think it was set in Finland, mm. up there somewhere. And uh, he was tending to his llamas or his elks or something. And he had to chase after them on a snowboard and you did tricks and grind on telephone poles or something, mm. jump over canyons, things like that. It was typical endless runner stuff, but just extremely relaxing. Mm. And it's a game that my wife and I both enjoy. We probably play more of than any other game. Really? Uh, it's It's got just a really good blend of... It's challenging and they have every level, they've got like three sort of goals that you're trying to do. Mm. Like, you know, do three backflips off a grind or something like that, do a particular trick. Or there's this thing called the wingsuit where you can fly and it's like fly really close to the ground for X amount of time or whatever. Right. Anyway, it's a great game, came out a couple of years ago and the sequel just came out a week or so ago, mm. which is called Alto's Odyssey. And we've been playing loads of it and it's it's great it's really quite similar to the original, but it's set in, it looks like it's set in Turkey or somewhere like that. And so it's it's gone from being like a snowy environment to essentially a sort of desert type environment. And, and you're not on a snowboard, but on some sort of sandboard thing. Mm. Uh, but they've got all these hot air balloons everywhere, which is different from previously. And there's new tricks that you can do because of those, because you can jump on top and bounce on top of them. And they... They have strings of bunting between them, which you can grind on. And they've got this new wall grind trick where there are these walls in the background that have sort of dots on them, essentially. But you can actually grind up the walls and then jump off them. Mm. Uh, and it's just, I think, it's a, a really good example. A, it's a really good example of a really good game that is designed and, and really meant for, for iOS, although we typically play it on the Apple TV. Mm. But B, it's also, I think it's a... As a sequel, I think they've done a pretty good job of keeping what was fun about the original, but adding just a few new things to just just give it a little bit of extra depth. Uh, so it's a great game. You should you should download it and give it a go. You don't need to have played the first one to enjoy the second one. Nice to see this kind of premium game, no in-app purchases, just a one-up cost, and there you go, good old-fashioned premium. Right. Yeah, I can't remember how much it costs. I think it's about $3, but it's a great game. They, they, I, yeah, I don't think there are any in-app purchases. There are, you play the game and you get you accumulate points, which you use to buy things in the game, but those you cannot buy points with money, so there's no cash purchases. Mm, I see. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a really good game. It's really relaxing. They also have, if the goals aren't for you, they've got what they call Zen Mode, which they had on the original and they still have on this one, mm. which is just free-form endless keep going no goals don't worry about it just just play so right. yeah great little game excellent do you um use any emulators to emulate you know like uh old consoles or platforms the, re- the reason i ask just before you answer the question is because uh one one of my uh, favorite emulators is uh, actually a commercial one called amiga forever mm. and uh, basically it is uh, somebody so it's a software group called Cloanto that used to make utilities for the Amiga back in the day, mm. back in the, the golden era of the uh, mid to, no, the uh, early to mid 90s when the Amiga was at its height. And uh, Cloanto now make this product called Amiga Forever, which is basically kind of like a nicely packaged up emulator system of the Amiga. You get, uh, I think, about 50 games when you purchase, and it's something like uh, they have different sort of tiers. I think there's like $30. 
Uh, the cheapest one is fifteen dollars, mm. and thirty dollars will get you a bunch of utilities, a bunch of uh, demo scene demos, and several games. But the the idea is that it's a nicely nicely presented sort of emulation of the Amiga, which you can then take ADF files, which are like a file based image, like an ISO image of an Amiga floppy disk, right? Uh, and you can sort of insert them, so to speak, into the emulator and basically, pl- right. you know, very very conveniently play all the old classics. And, of course, in these days, uh, fortunately, a lot of these old ADF files are, are fairly easy to come by on the internet mm. in sort of archives of, of games and, and on emulator sites and stuff like that. So I can highly recommend Amiga Forever if anybody's interested, to, uh, interested in getting into uh, some classic Commodore gaming. But uh, on the topic then of emulators, do you use any emulators frequently? I don't really... I'm not 100% sure about the legality of that whole thing. There's obviously the the OS image of like Amiga OS, for example, running on that. Yeah. The rights to that must be owned by somebody. And then there's the actual games. Often the like these commercial emulators will have sort of spoken to the people who hold the rights to the games and arranged all that. But I don't really know what's involved. I do have a ZX Spectrum emulator sitting around which i don't i don't often use but occasionally when i feel like actually writing something for the zx spectrum sometimes i'll i'll poke about with a bit of spectrum assembly and i wrote my own assembler a, a couple of years ago so mm. uh, i i was using it to sort of develop that but i do have it for for that purpose but i don't often sort of fire it up just to to relive those halcyon days as it were yeah, the the legality of emulation that's an interesting uh, topic in its topic in itself because uh, I know that in the case of Amiga Forever, mm. um, they when you buy the the more expensive edition of it, it comes with what are called Kickstart ROMs, mm. uh, and um, Kickstart was the sort of the I guess the the boot sector i don't really know the right word for it of of the amiga operating system mm-hmm. and so the kickstart roms would basically you know get you started into an environment which you could load amiga workbench which was the name of the the main operating system for the for the commodore amiga right um, and then from there obviously you're able to load games so actually the the legality of the game files themselves i'm not sure about that because it's a tough one isn't it because a lot of those i mean to begin with we're talking about copyright law here, but I mean, to begin with, most of those games are all cracked and trained anyway. And we, in a previous episode, I believe we talked about the trainers and the, the crack tros and all of that. Right. Uh, right. For, um, for you know, with the demo scene and with uh, the Commodore Amiga and the Commodore 64. Yes. I mean, of all platforms, if you're going to be emulating the Amiga, then that seems like the one where you'd be least concerned right. about piracy. You're really reliving the dream. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm not I'm not really sure actually uh, the the details of that, but uh, ADF files are readily available, mm. and they're on on they're like on many many different uh, sites. It's not like a torrent or anything. I mean, it's just right there on a on a on a I think Lemon Amiga is one, and then there's AmyNet is another, and then there's a right. there's a, there's a few others for uh, getting Amiga games. Right, and it's um I think the the preservation of that kind of thing is um, uh, something that's you know quite important in a way um, because obviously floppy disks it's not a long term storage medium by any means right right not that any kind of digital storage me- medium is a long term solution anyway but that's an, that's also right. another yeah. topic 
no, the, the whole sort of digital archival process and, uh, you know, d- desire to do so is, is quite interesting because there's, there's definitely efforts underway and there's also the web archive as well, mm. you know, archive.org that stores version snapshots of websites f- through the years. And that's the thing that we forget that the, the internet is sort of so ephemeral in a way and so is a lot of digital media. And in a way that the books aren't like we still dig up scrolls and books from thousands of years ago that are, are really interesting historically and unless we actually make an active effort to to keep digital media alive that's unlikely to be the case mm. Mm. what are the options for archiving digital media um it, are the options i guess the options are all physical i mean everything's physical in the end right true, true. I, I guess i'm thinking if you think of if we if we talk about physical, that is like a floppy disk that I hold in my hand right here, for example, mm-hmm. and we talk about data that exists copied across many many different systems, right? Like for example, uh, I, well, I guess like a Git repository, <laughs> in a in a sort of a an abstract conceptual sense. Well, well, a, re- a repository, a repository is a good choice of word. Mm. Uh, doesn't necessarily have to maintain versioning information like git does but i think that there are groups that are attempting to archive various collections of digital media and they you know at first they have to accumulate the original media right somebody has to have the original floppy disk or cd or whatever it may be incidentally cds we sort of think of them as lasting forever but we're getting to the era now where the chemical coating Mm. on the back of CDs that were manufactured in the 90s yeah, is actually starting to sort of fade and, and chip away. And those CDs are becoming unreadable. Right. So there, there's a, a time limit on these things. Mm. You need to try and get those onto another media as soon as you can and just accumulate as much as you can. Mm. And then then you have these large collections. And then I think it's just a process of of constantly moving them to the next current media, right? Because even, right. you know, whatever sort of media we put them on now, which is probably for large collections like this, is probably still some sort of spinning disc-based media, right? Mm. We've mostly, I think, moved to flash media for for local sort of personal use storage. But for that sort of volume, it's not really tenable yet. So, uh, you know, you put them on something now, but... So, something else will come along in a few years time and then the thing we put it on now will become obsolete and so you've mm. got to keep sort of moving these entire collections forward as you're growing them it's really i know i say it's interesting too much in station 13 but i'm going to say it right here because it is really interesting the idea we're getting into philosophical ter- territory now good good the idea that if you for example uh you have an amiga game as a dot adf file mm-hmm. and when you acquire that file Acquire means you're taking a copy of that data from some server. So it exists on a server, which means if we assume the server the server is actually serving the data from a physical medium, mm-hmm. like a hard disk mm-hmm. or flash memory or whatever, uh, then you're, when, you, when you download that for your own consumption, you are taking a copy of that data and putting it on your physical medium, whatever that may be. So now it exists in two places, but then say you multiply that by, you know, for, I don't know like uh, 10,000 people who happen to 
download that particular ADF file. Now you have 10,000 copies of the same data right. on 10,000 different 10,000 different physical mediums inside computers or or data storage devices yep. all around the world. So is that not in itself a kind of archival process? Yep, and I think that is the advantage of digital media that we could take advantage, you know, that we could make use of when we're thinking about archival. I mean, archival is is sort of a longer term form of backup, right? Ar- right. Archival and backup are, are two sides of the same coin. Mm. And one very important concept when you're thinking about backups is redundancy. Right. And in in the case of digital content, a copy has no less value than the original. Right. It's not like the original Dead Sea Scrolls are a, a physical artifact that you want to try and preserve that exact version. And a copy of the original Dead Sea Scrolls is not the same thing as the original. Right. That's not the case with digital media. Uh, A copy is is just as good as the original. And so I talked about sort of accumulating all this media and then having to keep rolling it forward to whatever is the next thing. That's a very centralized way of looking at the problem. But of course, you don't have to accumulate it all in one place you could distribute that effort. And in fact, it would be better to distribute it so that if your HP officers burn down, for example, you don't learn, you don't lose every single piece of documentation about everything HP made until a couple of months ago when mm. they did burn down and this happened. <laughs> uh, and and so, the, yes, taking advantage of this redundancy is, is a good idea. But if, if they're scattered all over the place and you don't know who's got what and how many people have what then it's not a huge improvement on there being floppy disks lying around somewhere i see because you may at any point the last person who happened to have a copy of the thing could you know wipe their disk and and lose it so i think you do you do want to have some notion of of knowing who's got what and that might be a central index mm. or the index itself might be distributed, right? I mean, we're moving into a more and more distributed world. BitTorrent, which you mentioned earlier, is an example of this, mm. where the, the torrent file that you download points you at a number of trackers which know information about this torrent and who's got which parts of it. Mm. But once you connect to any one of those trackers, it can connect you to yet more trackers. Mm. And so it it can grow beyond the information that is stored in the original torrent file. Similar thing with blockchain and Bitcoin and all of that. The whole point in that is that it's it's decentralized and distributed agreement of the current state of the world, right? Mm. And so in a similar way, you know, so long as you can have one index which points at other indexes, you, you can still distribute this this notion of, of archiving things. But mm. th- I, th- I think it does require an active effort and a knowledge of, of what existed as well, right? Which is, mm. which is research and is basically the same as the job of being an archivist has always been. The difference, of course, is that when you look at something like a, you know, a classic text or a book or a painting, there exists only one that is the original. Right. And, you know, in that situation, it the archival process for that, something physical of that degree, which is impossible to 
to duplicate and distribute right. uh, and have any kind of redundancy for, that obviously presents a whole range of different kinds of, uh, in a sense, very, very critical risks and problems. Right. And how do you protect that single piece of paper or that book or that painting or that recording uh, or, or whatever it might be? You know, that, that presents a whole range of different kinds of problems, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, de- definitely. But the, the, the one thing, it, the problem that it doesn't present that digital media do is that it becomes obsolete less quickly. Mm. So there's less of a, a sort of time limit on the original trying to take care of it. I mean, mm. obviously, if, if the thing's been sort of sitting in the sand for 2,000 years, it's not going to be in very good condition by the time somebody digs it up. Mm. So you still want to sort of hold on to it and take care of it as quickly as you can. But... Uh, it will last quite a long time. And there are objects that have literally been sitting in sand for 2,000 years that we've found and been able to do things with. Right. Whereas there are disks that were the current technology only a few decades ago that are becoming increasingly difficult to read the data off right. in any way. Because, you know, I mean, you can't, buy an Amiga floppy disk mm. drive right now, then they no longer make them. So you've got to use the ones that already exist in the world mm. and those break and get right. lost. Right. And so that's a depleting resource. And the cost of recreating one, like if they found an Amiga floppy disk in, in you know, 3018 and, you know, they, it's very important to them that they want to bring back Speedball 2 mm. <laughs> good for historical purposes very good and, and they had to look at this disc and try and reverse engineer how an amiga floppy disk drive worked so that they can read it mm. a that's probably more effort than they'll put it and b actually even that won't work because the magnetism on the film will probably have been lost and so the data will actually have faded away by that point right do you yeah the physical storage of of media uh, is uh, I know that um, Pixar, the uh, famed animated movie company, yep. um, they go to a lot of length to uh, make sure that their their uh, works are archived in a way that is uh, as immune to the effects of time and change and technology and, and obs- the, the the whole process of things becoming obsolete mm. as possible. And the way that they do that is storing their movies on good old-fashioned film. Mm. And they have some incredible technology and research that goes into storing their movies at maximum resolution possible onto film together with uh, several uh, interesting frames, I believe, that they put at the beginning of, of those archival reels to show how to actually reproduce, or how to actually play the movie Mm. from the uh, from those films so the idea is that okay maybe something's going to happen and they're not go- people are not going to know how to actually play these movies from this these films mm. so we need to make sure that these films actually in- include instructions for how to it's do that documenting mm. and the other uh, example that I'm reminded of of course is the the gold record disc mm. that's on the Voyager satellite oh yeah which is yeah, which is also, uh, you know, the, the the LP record in itself as well, being that the LP record is not 
magnetic in itself. Mm. It's a, it's completely physical in that all all it is doing is a groove that's vibrating a needle, mm. and from there you get your sound production. But the actual the actual storage medium itself is like film. It's this completely unrelated to magnetism. Right. You know. I guess again that that's also an interesting uh, an interesting example of a kind of you know uh, storage mechanism for essentially what is media which is still very, very physical. And it's, it's a shame that with games, we don't have that, you know. <laughs> we, we don't really, because, you know, there's, there, there is no, uh, not that I can think of, at least unless you want to get into like punch cards <laughs> or, uh, you know, a lot, right. of, a lot of punch cards for uh, storing a game. I don't think there are any ways to store a game on a medium that isn't based on magnetism. Well, I mean, you know, you could, you could uh, write a Spectrum game to vinyl if you wanted, which... <laughs> It'd still work. <laughs> yeah. Do you um speaking of vinyl, do you uh, do you have vinyl? Do you do you listen to vinyl? I not here in America. I have a record player and, and quite a few vinyl records at my parents' house in England. Mm. I used to not really collect vinyl, but uh buy the occasional vinyl record when I lived in England. Mm. In fact in, in Stratford upon Avon, where I'm from, there's a vinyl and record fair always around the time of my birthday okay perfect and because because there's a bank holiday near my birthday and so there's they always put a fair on that day Mm. and so i would get money for my birthday and then just immediately go out and spend it all on vinyl (laughs) (laughs) so i've got yeah i've I've got a, a few things and i was actually listening to it when i went back to england last summer and it was you know it it's nice but I'm not sure it's worth shipping all the way over here. I also bought the Hello Internet vinyl episode. They actually, the Hello Internet podcast released an episode on vinyl right. uh, last year, which I bought. I bought from Japan, had it sent to my parents in England. And then by the next time I went back to England and I could listen to it, I'd actually already moved to America. So there was, there was a lot of, I'd literally traveled the entire way around the world by the time I <laughs> listened to that. That's amazing that uh, that Hello Internet would release release uh, uh, vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they've got a lot of those sort of funny special edition sort of items over there. That's amazing. It's um, wonderful, isn't it, that uh, vinyl at the moment, it's, it's quite well known, vinyl is uh, experiencing a wonderful kind of renaissance. <laughs> and, uh, you know, despite... The physical sales, a physical medium sales of music, mm. which is basically CDs, obviously, uh, despite that dropping like a, a lead balloon mm. at the moment, uh, vinyl sales continue are continuing to rise, aren't they? Yeah, they are, uh, and they're you know it, it's popular. I suspect it's a little bit of a fad. Mm. I mean, I quite like the the thing of having a physical vinyl and of putting it on the record player and placing the needle on it you know it's a nice little ritual but i don't buy into this argument that sort of vinyl sounds better or sounds warmer Hmm. uh, or or whatever like the the fidelity is obviously better on a cd or on digital media Hmm. Um, uh... at least it's better than cassette which uh, so you talk about the resurgence of vinyl and the next joke, ha ha, next it'll be cassette tapes. Mm. Well, actually, Taylor Swift 
released her last album on cassette tape as well as all the other media. So that did actually happen. And that is just flat out stupid. (laughs) Cassettes are just so bad. Mm. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have to disagree with you on the vinyl front and you could probably expect that I would, I would do that. But uh, Danny vinyls do sound better. They do. They do. Now there are reasons for it. I guess it, it depends on the genre. That's one thing. It also depends on what you mean by better. That's right. There is undeniably, scientifically, I'm not going to uh, try to explain why it is scientifically uh, justifiable, but I'm going to say it anyway, uh, that uh, there is a certain special kind of vibe that you get from a vinyl recording compared to a CD recording. And I have, I don't collect vinyl. I used to uh, a little bit, uh, mostly techno. Um, mostly sort of electronic music. This was back in the the uh, late '90s, early 2000s, mm. the uh, the golden era of techno. And uh, yeah, I had several recordings on CD, which when I was going in, when I was in the record shop and I found it on vinyl, so oh, here's here's that. I'm going to get this too, mm. meaning that I could actually compare the two of them together. Sure. And there's such a huge difference in the way that it sounds. And it's not all just simply about getting with vinyl. It's not simply about getting maximum fidelity down onto the onto the the platter. Basically, the a lot of the recordings, especially with techno, have to be engineered in a certain way because bass frequencies can cause the needle to jump out of the groove. Right. So the way that uh, it has to the sound has to be engineered. It has to be done in a certain way so that it. Physically, it doesn't cause problems with reproduction. Okay, uh, when you actually when you have the needle on the record, so it means that generally you will get less really, really, really deep lows, like deep, deep low end down sort of twenty, thirty hertz. You won't get so much of that. Right, even up to sort of sixty, seventy hertz, you won't get so much of that, and will be more of a sort of low mid heavy. And also on the high end, you won't get the really, really high end. It will be sort of sort of uh, you know, high, mid, low treble kind of area. Right. I mean, that's that's a very interesting fact. And it's always interesting, I think, to, to think about the ramifications of the physicality of the media you're working with, whether it's vinyl or even more modern media, like flash storage and magnetic-based storage. Mm. That certain things are done in certain ways because of the physical details of, of these right. formats. That I That's all very interesting. But there's nothing stopping you from producing music with without the really bassy lows or the, the highs and putting it on a CD, right? Yeah, vinyl forces you to do that, but mm. you could have you could have mixed it in that way and, and put it on CD. Mm. If I'm understanding you, you correctly, you're you're sort of implying that they remaster it for vinyl in a way that you prefer the sound of. But they're doing that because of the constraints of vinyl, right? Possibly. Possibly, but then you also have the situation, for example, where if you've ever been to like a, a techno event, these days the music is all reproduced digitally. Mm-hmm. In the sort of late nineties, when uh, vinyl was was the the main form of music reproduction at these kinds of events, mm-hmm. there's also an undeniable difference in how that sounds too. The difference between having vinyl records played extremely loud versus CDs. Also, there is, in this, there is a difference with um, the way the, the noise floor shifts up and down with especially percussive music on vinyl compared to CDs. 
which can uh, really change the experience of listening to it. I'm not. Um, I know I'm on thin ice here because I don't actually have any scientific reasoning for why vinyl sounds better. <laughs> but um, just based on my own experiences of listening to the same recording on both on vinyl and also on on CD, there's such a huge difference. And I don't think it's entirely down to just the fact that it's been remastered. It's been mastered differently because of the physical medium that it's working with. Right. There are. Yeah, we need to. Uh, it's Google time, but not right now. Maybe later. Uh, yeah. All right. I mean, and of course, as always, opinions on the Reddit. But I did used to buy into all this. Mm. I mean, that's you know, that's why I, I had a lot of vinyls and I listened to vinyl a lot. And the music that I listened to, like I bought quite a few Tom Waits vinyls, and they seem eminently suitable for vinyl and fit in with that thing that you're looking for from vinyl. I bought some Cradle of Filth vinyls, maybe less so, mm. but. And I bought a lot of like early sort of random blues things, blues and jazz stuff, right? Big band as well. But uh, all the things you're saying are are very interesting, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> but you're wrong. <laughs> uh, but there's just they all sort of describe the results of the thing rather than than the causes of it in a, in a sense. Mm. And and they can all be done on CD. I think is the thing that I'm getting at. The one, th- the one argument you could make that I think is pr- possibly true with vinyl and not with CD is that if you listen to the same vinyl twice, it might not sound exactly the same mm. because the needle, you know, might move slightly differently. The vinyl may have just warped very slightly between listens. Uh, all these uh, extra effects that you're talking about that that are the result of too much bass or things that are too high in the mix. So there's a, a sort of organicness that you could argue about vinyl that you get a very subtly different effect every time you listen to it. I could buy that argument because a CD, every time you play it, you're, you're going to get exactly the same sound out of it, right? Mm-hmm. Modulo, whatever your speakers are doing. But uh, so, so that I could buy. But anything about, uh, you know, the, the, the way that things are mixed for vinyl or the way that that the nature of vinyl itself causes different sounds to come out, that that may very well be true, but you could simulate that same effect and put it down on a CD and get the same thing if that's the effect you were going for, right? I'm just uh, I did just try typing into Google why does vinyl sound better, and there's a lot here, so we won't go into it. I think we'll uh, we'll uh, if you if listeners are interested, you can uh, look it up for yourself. One thing about vinyl which is undeniable... You've used that word a lot, and I'm not sure it means what you think it means. Undeniable. <laughs> <laughs> the experience of listening to something on vinyl... So let's put aside uh, audio quality. Mm-hmm. The experience of listening to something on, on vinyl, one reason that I like to think is... Okay, there's a better, better way to say it than undeniable. One reason that I like to think <laughs> is very significant for uh, the resurgence and popularity of vinyl mm. at the moment is the sort of disposable nature of music at the moment, especially with things like Spotify where and Apple Music and, and all of those where you can have access to any music track, any album you want, ever, anywhere, everywhere, all the time, right. you know, whenever you want and, and everything. It's I know for myself as well that I use uh, Spotify at the moment and 
it's kind of sad. I'm, I'm sad to say that it, this, I'm not the only one who's said this as well, but since getting Spotify, I don't listen to music as much anymore. Mm. And I'm not the only person to say that. And I think that the, the convenience of it is so great that the experience of listening to music has kind of, kind of dropped a little. And there's a, there's a benefit to that. One benefit is that the, the significance and the importance and the, the thrill of live music is really gripping people at the moment. Mm. And you see that everywhere. Uh, my father actually uh, is on the management of a um, group of uh, Baroque music musicians in, uh, in Adelaide. And the past few years, they've just seen a huge, huge surge in popularity of their concerts. Mm. And it's, it's not only on a small scale like that as well, but on the large scale. Now that music has become so disposable and, and readily accessible any, anywhere, everywhere, all the time, whichever song you want to hear, you know, the, the act of actually going to see an artist play the, the music that you like or finding a new artist at a performance or whatever uh, has taken on a new new sort of... Um, significance. Yeah, new significance and a new uh, kind of uh, vibrant uh, thrill, which, which is fantastic because, you know, live music is, is amazing. But, uh, mm. you know, so when you're talking about reproduced music then, you can either double-click on a song in Spotify or, or Apple Music or whatever all the way on the other end of the spectrum of that experience is this big kind of, you know, thing has a smell. You pull it out of the sleeve, like it's got this massive, mm. whatever it is, 30 centimeter, 30 centimeter square kind of picture of, of something on it that the artist has thought would be appropriate for this. And, and you can smell it and you put it on the platter and you you've got to dust it off and you lift up the needle and you put it down. You know, and and you you can hear this crackling sound, and then you, you yep. go through. The, I'm not talking about audio quality. You go through the music, and then it's it's like oh, the, this this side is over. So you lift it up and you turn it over, and you you dust it again, and put the needle back down, and you listen to, you know that it's right on the opposite end of the spectrum as far as mm. the the ritual and the the physical involvement with reproduced music compared to just double clicking on a file, which is so commonplace now. So I like to think. It is undeniable that <laughs> that uh, that actual uh, visceral experience of listening to music all the way on that end of the spectrum uh, has become very appealing to people just because of the convenience and the ubiquity of things like Apple Music and Spotify and, and YouTube as well, uh, where um, uh, you know music is so easily accessible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I basically agree with you. I, I also enjoy that ritual, and when I went back to England last summer, I got the record player out. I dug it out of the attic because my parents aren't interested in reliving those days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I put some records on and, and it was nice. And I, I do enjoy that. And that that crackle and all of the sort of artifacts that you get from the way that vinyl works and the fact that specks of dust on the record affect the sound... I think that is something you can enjoy. Hmm. And again, it's something you can simulate on a CD. You could put artificial crackle in there. You could take a recording from a vinyl and have the same crackly sound. But on a vinyl, every time you play it, the cracks, the crackles will be in a slightly different place. And, you know, so there, there's something to be enjoyed there. It has nothing to do with warmth or quality or fidelity, but it's a separate thing that is enjoyable in its own right. Hmm. So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not 
against vinyl by any stretch of the imagination. Speaking of live music, I'm going to a gig this month. Nice. Exciting. I haven't been to a gig in a very long time. I'm going to see Mike Patton and John Zorn. I don't don't know them. Which is extremely exciting. What uh, what music is that? Uh, yes, <laughs> we will find out because they've both done a great many things separately. Mm. Mike Patton is the singer from Faith No More oh, okay. and Mr. Bungle and Phantomers and various other bands. He's done quite a lot of collaborations with other people as well. Mm. Uh, John Zorn is a sort of experimental jazz saxophonist and composer mm. that has been around for for decades as well uh, and he's done again a, a huge range of stuff some of it is verging on the sort of death metal end of the scale mm. in terms of very heavy guitars doing things um Do, some of it doing is, things is doing things <laughs> doing all the things do, doing well yes and what he does with a saxophone is not what most people would call music on a saxophone, but he's also a very talented musician, but he, he makes some sounds with a saxophone that I did not know was possible to make with a saxophone. Right. He, he, and he's also done, you know, much more sort of somewhat more traditional, very listenable jazz music. There's an album he's got called Alhambra Love Songs, which I have, which we actually used a track from that during our wedding as background music and nobody even mm. noticed. So <laughs> it's definitely, you know... Uh, his his album Naked City, I think, is a fantastic album. He's got a few, he does quite a few movie soundtracks as well, John Zorn. Mm. And he's got some some great covers of of the theme from Batman, the Sicilian Clan, and a couple of other things on on Naked City. And he's he's got another album that's very famous called Spillane. Uh, he and Mike Patton have done an album together called Six Litanies for Heliogabalus. Heliogabalus, the famous. Roman was he an emperor or a noble? I can't remember. But he he famously probably didn't. But the legend goes uh, that he drowned his enemies in rose petals once. Like he he had a, a load of enemies that he wanted to get rid of, so he invited them for dinner, locked them in the room that they were eating dinner in, and then filled the room with rose petals until mm. they suffocated. <laughs> apparently. <laughs> Right, um, which is a lot of rose petals. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, album uh, based on him, lovely. D- lots of screaming. Mike Patton screaming a lot, and it's just <laughs> extremely noisy album. So I don't know if if what they're doing together at the end of this month. It's in San Francisco uh, on on the twenty fifth of March. So if anybody is going to be in San Francisco and wants to see Mike Patton and John Zorn, uh, you should get a ticket. Hmm at the chapel and uh i don't know what sort of music they're going to be doing i haven't kept up with what they've done you know whether they've had any collaborations since six litanies for heliogabalus but i've been a fan of both of their work f- for 10 or so years uh, so i'm very excited to be seeing them great and their live music i think john zorn did a thing uh where he invented these games i think that was john zorn maybe that's john cage hmm one of them invented these these games where they got a whole jazz band together and they would improvise music, but there were specific rules they had to follow. I think that might have been John Cage there. Mm. They're both Jazzy Johns. <laughs> Jazzy Johns. <laughs> anyway, I'll stick some links in the show notes to some albums of these people. They're mm. great, uh, but they're they're very weird. 
Speaking of um, music, I mentioned previously, you know, the, the uh, obviously live music becoming more popular, which is great. But the the, the mediums that we, the, the channels that we use to consume music these days, um, these kinds of um, large, you know, music streaming services like uh, the ones that I mentioned mm. and YouTube. Now, YouTube is a is a huge source of uh, so many people go to YouTube to listen to music, which is kind of funny considering that YouTube is a video service. Um, but people go to YouTube to listen to music which is uploaded by the artist and music that is uploaded not by the artist. And um, that causes, obviously, a lot of issues where you have people you know, getting lots and lots and lots of views for their video, potentially actually you know, uh, monetizing videos of other people's music that they had no involvement with the production of. Mm-hmm. So ethically, that's, you know, that's not on. However, there's an example. Uh, I watched a video by a, uh, a YouTuber that I really, really love and I highly, highly recommend. Uh, he's called Adam Neely. Mm. And Adam Neely is a bass player. He's a professional bass player, a session bassist in New York City. He's a young guy uh, and he makes weekly musicology videos. Mm. Uh, he's a bass player, which is, makes it very interesting for me. But beyond that, he makes some really fascinating uh, weekly uh, videos, all based around musicology, music theory, music history, uh, music analysis, and progressive music techniques, and all of this kind of stuff. It's it's just fantastic. Now, he made a video, um, uh, which I uh, saw recently, but he actually made it, I think, several, maybe a few years ago or a few months ago, I'm not sure now, mm. uh, where he talked about the problems with YouTube algorithmically identifying reproduction of music in videos Mm. as being copyright infringement Mm. and broadcast infringement and therefore sort of automatically striking videos uh, that contained music content from other artists. There are various kind of tricks that you can do to sort of get around that. For example, make the, the music from the original artist being very, very short, but... What he mentioned uh, was uh, a serious problem with that system is that in his case, he is a music educator. Mm. So he his channel is all about music education and it's clear that it is about music education. If you, you just browse through the titles of what he's done, you can see this is a music teacher mm. and he's a very, very good one. Mm. I love his, his, uh, his videos because they can be very, very advanced from a musicology and a music theory point of view, but that can also be very, very simple as well. So he, he caters to a whole spectrum of uh, different uh, experience and knowledge levels with music. So anyway, it's clear that he uploads these videos with the purpose of education being foremost. This is why he does this. Mm. He, he was saying that because of this automated algorithmic system, which with finding matches between what's in a video and a copyrighted piece of music it seriously limits what he can actually do because he can't play examples of what he's talking about right and if he could you know if it was possible for him to say okay let's take this track let's analyze it let's break it down mm-hmm. here is here's the track now let's look at this section and then now let's analyze these this chord progression or whatever uh, which is the kind of stuff he does if he was actually able to present that piece of music so you could listen to it and then analyze it together with him that is like from a, a a music learning point of view. That is incredibly valuable, mm. but can't do that because 
the the video kind of gets uh, like this automated uh, broadcast copyright strike and then it gets taken down. So he was complaining about this whole system and it's a really ethically and also technologically and from a system point of view, it's a very difficult thing to deal with because, yes, it's clear when you look at his website, his uh, channel, you can see that, okay, this guy's here for education. But when you look at you know the the average person who finds some artist that they like and then uploads a video of it mm. and then gets you know a hundred thousand five hundred thousand views of that artist's song even though they had no involvement in the production of it mm. so they're essentially stealing views away from the original artist mm. you know it's both of them can be seen by an algorithm as being doing the same thing even though the intentions are very different and it if you needed a person to come in and make a judgment oh, well, clearly this person is an educator. That's why he's using this recording. Right. This person is not. Uh, then, you know, for the amount of volume of what gets uploaded to YouTube, it's just not practical. Right. So what do you think? What's the – where? how do you draw the line and is there even a solution for this or is it is the way that things are at the moment the only solution that can be possible? I mean, this is a perennial problem for YouTube, I think. There's, there's this and a number of related problems that all boil down to – dealing with the scale of the sheer number of videos that are uploaded every minute mm. and the the amount of work it would take for a human to monitor all those is basically impossible. Like mm. they couldn't employ enough humans to do it and stay profitable. If they even are profitable at the moment, I'm not <laughs> sure if that's the case. <laughs> right. I think they are. YouTube makes the vast majority of its money from music videos. Right, I think is is a fact that I've heard recently. That, you know, there's there's quite a range of content on YouTube, but apparently the vast majority of uh, YouTube views and advertiser money that goes to YouTube comes from people watching music videos on YouTube. Mm. Another big source of income for YouTube is is children's programs content that is produced for YouTube mm. for consumption by children because uh, parents can put their children in front of YouTube for an indefinite amount of time and, and keep getting content. And that has also caused a number of problems for YouTube because there's weird algorithmically produced content that is sometimes wildly inappropriate that has been sort of controversial recently. I don't know what they can do mm. other than keep tweaking their algorithm to try and reduce the false positives mm. while still remaining effective. Essentially, in copyright law generally, I think, the onus is mainly on the copyright holder right. to go out and look for people who are breaking copyright. Right? Mm. I mean, obviously, legally speaking, the, the people who are stealing the content are the ones that are in the wrong. Mm. But I think, I think the responsibility lies more with the copyright holder than it does with YouTube, the people hosting the content. Like the copyright holder should notify YouTube, and then YouTube needs to be proactive, having received that notification, mm. to take it down. But that's too much work for the record labels to be doing. Right. And YouTube desperately wants to keep the record labels happy because that's where they make so much of their money. Mm. So they want to err on the side of pleasing those people i think mm. and so this is probably why it tends to be that you get a lot of 
false positives. Hmm. With an educational channel like that, you'd hope that the fact that he doesn't just play the song all the way through, but presumably he plays sections of it and then talks about them and then plays a different section counts mm. towards the way the algorithm processes it yeah right? i mean he's he's very very careful so he actually doesn't do that at all because he doesn't want his videos taken down so he right he uh, uh if he does play a snippet of a music uh, of a music track he'll play like basically a one second snippet of the track and then say go and listen to the original right <laughs> so right. so he's very very careful but uh yeah the fact that he was complaining about it but it is such a difficult problem right and it's there's another related issue which is the actual content uh, because there's, you know, certain advertisers don't want their adverts placed next to certain content. Right. And so YouTube is trying to sort of analyze videos to see whether it's got sexual content in it or violent content in it. Right. Or, you know, what is the word? Like brainwashing for terrorist organizations and things right. like that. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and they take, they pull advertising, they leave the video up, but they pull advertising on things with with what they consider to be sort of inappropriate content mm. and that has i mean i know they talked about this on hello internet quite a bit because they're both youtubers youtubers on on that show mm. and and they've been hit by it with things that are obviously not inappropriate you know right. and people who are just they're talking to a professor about chemistry and somehow the algorithm goes wonky mm. and it flags it as inappropriate and then there's an appeals process but it it seems that even in this appeals process, often a human is still not involved. Mm. And so that that does seem to be a, a problem that they're facing as well. You kind of wonder whether this whole thing is sort of like a Pandora's box that has no solution and we've, we may have bitten off more than we can chew with this whole concept because it's such a difficult problem. You know, how do you, how do you regulate on the one side, but then also on the other side, how do you encourage right. on the other way? The um, uh, Just last night... Uh, Danny, uh, I highly recommend not only Danny, but actually everybody listening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't know why I just started off with just you, but uh, you should go and check out the latest video from a musician that I really love called Melody Sheep. Mm. Have you heard of Melody Sheep? Well, since I saw you retweet it okay. yesterday, okay, yes, so, <laughs> yeah. So I I did retweet it. Um, yeah, there's a Melody Sheep is a musician who has made his fame from making. F- really, really great remixes of science video narrations. Mm. So he takes science video, science videos, uh, and he'll uh, somehow or other get the narration, extract that out, and then he remixes them. He, he either, he used to do a lot of uh, basically harm, um, very uh, uh, specky pitch shifting in order to make the narrations sing the, ver- the lyrics to his his uh, his music clips. Mm. So that's a great way to get around the algorithm because obviously when it's it's pitched like that, it sounds very, very different from the original. And because he's splicing up bits and pieces of the original narration so that it fits it into a song structure, it resembles the original even less. Right. So it's very, very clear that this is there's a lot of work put into it and it's a very but, I mean yeah that is an actual creative work right that is that is not just ripping off somebody else's content yeah and the um his latest video is called time lapse of the entire universe mm. and it's uh 10 minutes and 50 seconds and it is absolutely fantastic and in this case he hasn't uh, harmonized 
the narration at all. The narration is, is uh, in its original form basically from a few different science videos about the birth of the universe. Mm. And the music behind it is fantastic and the, and the music clip, I don't, it's amazing. Anyway, one of the comments to that was, this, this is amazing. How is it that you don't get copyright strikes from this content? Mm. And yeah, that's what kind of made me think of this as a dis- uh, topic for us to discuss because in in his case as well, you can see that surely if the BBC or National Geographic or any of the, the original creators of these video programs and with their narrations saw this video that he's created, there's no way that they would think, oh, this guy's making money off our production unfairly and we're not getting anything for it. Right. Just because the extent to which he has taken their content and kind of remixed it and and bent it and manipulated it to a to a point where it can be used for his purposes in such an amazing creative very very moving and in very entertaining way mm. but an algorithm on the other hand obviously doesn't have that kind of subjective judgment right yeah i mean yeah yeah it's difficult have you seen cassette boys videos no i haven't Sounds good, though. That's another similar thing. Okay. Cassette Boy takes political videos, typically, and and clips from the news and things like that. Right. And splices them together to make a song, which is also parodying what's going on in the news. So usually he's sort of taking conservative politicians or whatever and splicing their words together to make them say terrible things (laughs) i see so the focus is a bit more on the satire right rather than the music Uh, you know it's entertaining enough musically but the the main point is is to make the satirical sort of point Mm. um but anyway it's a similar thing taking Mm. taking clips and mashing them together and and pitch bending them and things and things like that Mm. but i think that is you know that is more clearly a a creative work it's not taking the the clips directly and just right. putting them in there another thing that's quite difficult to to deal with is reviews mm. where you get people who are reviewing films and even sometimes other youtubers right because youtube itself is sort of a, a valid medium in its own right now right right so it's it's reasonable to review or to criticize another youtube video mm. and there was one lawsuit recently where I'll have to look it up because I can't remember the names of any of these people. Mm. But one YouTube channel had found this video made by another YouTube channel and they had sort of basically mocked it because uh, the the original video was pretty bad. And so they were sort of half reviewing, half mocking this original video. But they they ended up taking quite large clips from that original video. I think they ended up with like, 90% or something of the original video content being in their video somewhere along the way, right? Because they would take a clip at the beginning and then talk about it for a bit and then take the next clip and talk about it for a bit. Mm. And so the the maker of the original video actually sued them. Mm. And in the end, these people won the case that theirs was a legitimate uh, fair use is the name of the, the sort of legal framework right. that allows this. Because they were... They were not trying to to take that video and and just pass it off as their own, or even make. I think that the 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 thing with the line is drawn with fair use, where if 
people could get out of your video that includes the copied content basically the same thing as they would get out of the original, then that's bad, mm. right? Right. So if you've got like a Star Wars video where you've got the whole of Star Wars playing with all the audio and everything, and it's just you sort of sitting on the sofa watching it, that wouldn't count as fair use because you could just watch that and watch Star Wars and ignore you on the sofa mm. and get the Star Wars experience. Whereas I think the argument with this was, well, you're watching this video for an entirely different purpose, right? You're watching this to see this criticism and you're really watching it mostly for the comments that these these people doing the criticism are making, mm. not for the original content. Right, right. Um, and I think that was the reason it was passed in their favor. But obviously, you know, it's gone quite far by the time it's it's been taken to court, right? right. So <laughs> I don't think this one was flagged by YouTube's automatic system. I think the original guy actually proactively took them to court because he was annoyed because they just insulted him. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, have you um, seen Everything as a Remix? Yes, I have. That's by that uh, Every Frame of Picture, isn't it? Or is that a different one? Uh, it's by Kirby Ferguson, who's an independent filmmaker. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, it's a th- I think it's a four-part uh, online video series, mm. uh, which is uh, it's freely 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 viewable. So um, I think it was I think it was uh, done with a um, uh, Kickstarter campaign mm. to to fund it. But definitely, uh, listeners, if you're interested in uh, copyright and plagiarism and remixing, I'm sure they are definitely check out this series. Yeah, it's um. <laughs> it's uh, everything is a remix, and uh, we'll have links in the show notes, I'm sure. But the uh, basically the premise there is that nothing is original, right? So uh, it's, it's sort of looking at the, the the far end of this spectrum that we're talking about, where the the idea of taking content made by other people and repurposing it for your own intentions, and then calling it your own, whether you know the ethics of that. So definitely check that out if you're interested. Yes. And that's the end of the show. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, that's it. That, sorry, I you got, did the starting theme. I got the start. Oh. Do, 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 do at the end. Yeah, well, that'll make for good B-roll. <laughs>